Right, good morning, good, well, yeah, almost afternoon. So here I am with John Clay. I am Deanna Avis from Bruhex, and this is Rant Fox. Today, we're gonna be talking about Robin DiAngelo, the author who wrote White Fragility, and some of the reactions to her work. So essentially what started off this conversation, apart from this book is very high profile and it's been on bestseller lists, it's been on a lot of people's minds, is an article that uh, I read on The Guardian last week and then shared with John, which was about how, um, essentially how white, the book White Fragility could be used to blame individual people and take away the societal responsibility from like um, from racism basically so we kind of like I guess the way that I read the article was if we put the responsibility on the individuals it means that at a larger level we don't have to do anything to fix things but there's humongous there's so many elements to this argument that I think to sum it up like that is the is insufficient. I mean, that's just one of the things that came up. What we want to talk about broadly is what are the reactions to Robin D'Angelo's work? What does it mean for a white person to be doing anti-racist work? And is that ethical for them to be earning money off of doing anti-racist work? How is that received by, um, by black people, by people of color, and all of that? So John, having opened that very broad topic, what are your initial thoughts about Robin D'Angelo and her work? Sure. Um, I want to start off by saying anyone who saw our last video who may have been looking forward to me talking about weaponization of black voices um, against black people by those who are maybe more right, if not far right, that will be part of this discussion. Um, how do I feel about this? My first thought is, what if we can just do a bit of an experiment here and just imagine what if her book Robin DiAngelo's book didn't actually exist. If it wasn't there, if it wasn't on the table as a discussion, where would we be at now in culture? Um, any invention, idea, be it uh, technologically based or literary based, starts off somewhere. This book came out in 2018. We are now in 2020. So many things have happened. And so therefore, there will be things in this book which I don't agree with. Um, and those things will obviously have other authors that come along and stand on those shoulders and say, actually, this is a good start, but this is what we need, need to do now. Yes. Um, and I'll get specific on that in a moment because I don't want to take up too much time in my section of talking. There's a lot to get through in the time that we have in this episode of Rampbox. Um, so, yeah, I don't think that we should look at it in a, a very draconian way. I mean, you could look at um, various instigations of conversation about how white people will have bias and I'll use that rather than saying racism because ultimately I think that again um, is uh, probably more profitable in terms of how we talk about this uh, though I am risking the idea of walking around fragility now um, a word which I will use <laughs> um, but yeah essentially um, there there is a, a predominant amount of um, emphasis on what people should say and what they shouldn't say and how they should think, um, as opposed to what institutions should be um, uh, taken into regard. But she does talk about how if you are a, uh, a person going for an interview for a job at a school, whether it be a headmaster, headmistress, however you may want to term it, 
you should know about race enough to deal with those students. Obviously, that's um, something that we may not necessarily talk about enough in an interview situation because we're in this post-racial light, right? Uh, due to Barack Obama being um, president and other social uh, idioms. So yeah, I, I ultimately think that if we do assess this book, it should be based on when it was written rather than how we can truly use it going forward now. That's my reaction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a good point. I read it when it first came out, which, you know, it really wasn't that long ago, but so much has changed. But my initial reaction to that book was um, that it was so refreshing to hear someone talking about these things that we really do not hear talked about. So I think um, D'Angelo deserves credit for being one of the first voices. Obviously, sorry, not one of the first voices because people have been talking about this for centuries, but maybe one of the prominent white voices to be trying to get other white people to listen to this. And so I think something that is helpful and also problematic is that sometimes white people will hear the message better if it's from another white person. That sucks and it's not healthy, but at the same time, if, if that's a dynamic we're dealing with, then we can we should try and do everything we can to somehow break down these barriers and get the messages to people and it's not exclusive of saying we should also look at why do white people not listen to people of color um but i guess essentially to make an analogy with like the gay rights movement and all of that gay rights happened also because you had a huge amount of support from straight people saying, you know what, we are not gay, but we care about this um, because we see that as humans, this is about human rights. So I, I see it kind of the same with racism where we can't leave it to the, um, the black indigenous and people of color to be carrying this fight on their own. This is a human rights issue and we do all need to be in it together. So yeah, that's kind of my thoughts on, on her, her place in this and how, um, how her voice is helpful. You know. Yeah, that also, um, if you permit me uh, to move on to this kind of tangent subject of how she may have profited from what she's doing. I mean, how could she not profit from doing it? Let's discuss this. Um, mm -hmm. Rewinding to 2018, I am not aware of her economic situation or her economic values of her individualist self or her family. I have not got any information about her property whatsoever. Could she have donated the money to charity? Maybe she has. Maybe someone wants to tell us in the comments. Um, but essentially, that would probably be the go-to place for me if I'm thinking about how what she's saying could in some way uh, be more profitable for the community via a charity that she thinks could help her cause. For example, I've mentioned it before, uh, the Black Curriculum um, is a UK charity. I'm sure there must be some kind of US equivalent. Um, there has to be some kind of US equivalent. If there isn't, then it's in her best interest to ask that question um, because she does care about this situation. There's videos that will be linked to this actual video that show what she's saying in various interviews that I've been checking out as well. Um, so yeah, I, I don't think that she wantonly wants to profit from it, but arguably when people say that she has, there's a lot to discuss there. I mean, what do you think, Dee? Yeah, I don't know. I guess that this, to me, this links with the greater topic of kind of infighting between allies and infighting between 
white people, so people trying to attain like higher and higher levels of wokeness and then like shouting at people who aren't as woke as them. And so I'm kind of seeing like Robin D'Angelo as a tremendous ally who's done a lot of good work, but because we are so critical, rightly so, of white people in the way that they have affected the world, then we start criticizing everything white people do. And so I guess it's like, are we criticizing Robin D'Angelo just because she's white rather than on the merit of her ideas? Good point. I think that you're right. There is quite a bit to talk about there. And I think there are more positives than negatives due to this book actually existing. Um, as you rightly pointed out, she is not the first person to talk about this. Um, but if people are going to talk about the, the phrase white fragility, people are going to think about this book. This book is going to be the first thing that comes up. And so therefore there is a responsibility as to how we write about it um, and how we comment on it. I mean, maybe we should move on to the section regarding uh, the linguist, uh, John McCorter, I think that's how you say his name. Um, he has been in interview uh, for articles that want to discuss his, um, his review of the book. Uh, we'll just now bring them up on the screen because we're all techie that way now. Yes, we are. Hold on a second. I had it. I just need to move this little bar so I can. There we go. We can find it. <laughs> Ta da! Okay. Here we are. I'll scroll to the top so that people see what the article is. Um, Good idea. That one. Linguist yeah, so John McWhorter says white fragility is condescending towards black people. Okay. Um, we ought to give some background on John McWhorter. He is normally seen as a black conservative, um, though he doesn't actually agree with that terminology from the videos that I've seen of him. He believes that the left has become quite radicalized and so therefore his position is seen as right, though that is not necessarily how he frames himself. Um, so as we previously said in this video, he has written a, how would you, how would you actually term the review it's not particularly favorable um he, he doesn't really appreciate what this book is saying um but one of the things that i picked up on um and he does this a numerous amount of times across media that he's involved in especially in this conversation um is that he's overly i think concerned with the ability of uh, the ability of white people to talk about race um and i don't think even though he is coming from a good place. I don't think that's particularly useful because it's not that white people don't have the platforms to discuss race <laughs> as much as they do. I mean, look at this, um, uh, look, look at the, the world we're in now in terms of who has the bigger platforms and who can speak. It's kind of unbalanced, you know? I mean, even this very uh, interview situation, I would like to think that people like yourself, BMI, ought to have a bigger mouthpiece to talk about stuff we, we've been through, but we're normally having to go through the conduits of other people who are white in order to get those um, uh, thoughts across. So I, I think that his concern about white people's ability to speak, um, it's, it's a bit, well, it's a bit much. And as you can see in this uh, interview, it's there, he talks about being, um, or them being muzzled. Uh, yeah. 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 Yeah, that's a really, really good point. Um, cause I guess a lot of the, again, similarly, I'll flick to the, the article by the guardian, which was related to the, what sparked off this, this conversation in the first place this article by, uh, Sonia Soda, 
was also about how it can be alienating for white people to be blamed for racism and for their individual actions and blah, blah, blah. But I guess where I'm kind of at with it is, so what if it's alienating? Like, don't do those things. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, I think- you No, know, um, the truth hurts. <laughs> it does. I think, unfortunately, and we've spoken about this at length, right? At some point, people who feel that they haven't been able to talk about something, they make that kind of pain the the main um, uh, topic of discussion. Like it becomes about their fragility, which is the point of of Robin's book in many places. Um, I think that the the strongest criticism against it, which I can agree with, is that there doesn't seem to be a a rounded idea as to what people do with this knowledge. There doesn't seem to be a, a, a constructive movement forward as to how they go beyond just treating people in their lives mm. um, who are black um, or those theoretically that could enter their lives with a certain amount of respect, right? Um, so again, we're, we're, we're attacking the, the, I'm not saying people the weeds, but we're attacking the weeds rather than looking what's making them grow. Um, so as much as people get bored of me saying this, it's about campaigning for education to be to be overhauled. Um, I think that um, the book Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race is a lot better in that regard in terms of how it deals with systemic uh, institutional racism. Um, but yeah, what do you reckon? Yeah, yeah, so true. I mean, they're two different approaches, aren't they? And I think that the it's not one or the other. We need the individual and the societal change. Because imagine if we just had societal change, but people kept perpetuating these things in their own interactions, then it would just still be really horrible. It just in different yeah. ways. So they're not mutually exclusive. But I guess with, um, you know, the risk with excessive focus on individual actions is that you can think, okay, job done. Like I've learned the new rules of how to behave nicely or properly in um in an anti-racist way and then to think that that you're done because as if it's kind of like a game and so i think what is important is that people maintain a level of discomfort with this because even once you've learned and educated yourself on some of the ways individually that you contribute to it there's still it's not fixed yet so we can't rest and think that we don't have any anything left to do so I guess that you're right, that is kind of like a hole in Robin D'Angelo's book. It's kind of like, what do you do next? Um, because what, what right. it can do is then split people into like, okay, I'm someone who's read the book White Fragility. I know how to tell people off for when they're being fragile white people and therefore I'm now one of the good ones. And we don't want to be splitting people off into the good ones and the bad ones because then that just means the good ones become complacent. <laughs> so like we're, no one is good until we're all good, basically. We, all, we need to all fix this. Yeah, um, we do have to address, before we move on to the weaponization of black voices against black people, um, there has been a rather legitimate concern that what uh, D'Angelo does is uh, a form of a, she acts like a pastor, according to John McCorta, in that she believes, or he believes that she is talking to the left as though it is almost like a cult, where if you don't believe what that section of the left is saying, therefore you are the enemy. Um, how do you feel about this before I weigh in with my thoughts? Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how okay. I feel about that specific argument. So go ahead. Okay, yeah. Um, I feel that 
I'm split on this because um, every now and again, I'll joke about being radicalized, right? Um, because like you get this sense of not understanding that what you may have been doing before, what I was doing before was either non-existent or not enough. Um, and yet there is merit in realizing that if someone's going to tell you their point of view and if it doesn't necessarily chime with your own, in understanding what that view is and then counteracting it and, and keeping that discussion going. It's only when that point of view um, is inherently bigoted and inherently um, uh, disenfranchising to the integrity of that person that I don't know how to talk to them. Do you know what I mean? Um, so to bring it back to John McCorter's uh, analysis, um, he, as I said before, doesn't think of himself as being conservative or particularly right. He just believes that people who are on the left since the, the, the advent of, like, say, the early 70s um, black power movement as it was, you know, truly uh, instigated in the, in the 60s civil rights movement has uh, warped people's perception of their identity in that if we did suddenly get, say, um, a whole load of other reparations in, in the UK and in the US, people who are um, like Tunisia Coates, all those people that are really angry about this kind of stuff, they, they still won't be happy because that's part of their identity. Um, so yeah, like, I feel like it's important to share that element here in this um, forum because we normally, I don't think we normally talk about these people in this way. Um, but again, uh, your thoughts, I'm literally just saying it as, this, this is the stuff that's kept me up all night, apart from other crazy shit that's going on, but yeah. Yeah, likewise. I was literally dreaming about this conversation. So, <laughs> um, I, I think that what you're saying, I mean, the way I'm hearing it is it relates very much to the idea of meritocracy. And so I think that John Border, is that his name? I want to make sure I said it right. Um, like, I'm kind of getting this impression, and again, this is not research, this is just my opinion, that this is someone who has been able to strive and succeed and do very well for himself. And because then people feel very proud of how they've done and they don't want to feel victimized, they then think that other people can do that. So it's kind of how one person being successful doesn't mean that there's not systemic factors at play. That's just the anomaly. But it's kind of like he's used that to disprove that people can be oppressed. So I, I don't know. I think that just in general, we see this a lot with people who have been quote self-made successes like oh look at me like I don't have a college degree or I was homeless and now like I'm a multi-billionaire you know not saying that he said that but just other people who said that and then just become basically massive conservatives <laughs> who say look because I did it everyone else can do it so stop whining and get off your butt well this is the thing and um you're such a good co-presenter because now we can segue into what we initially were going to talk about um yeah so I've received um a lot less now, but when George Floyd died, I received a lot of messages from white people who were saying that essentially what you're saying is wrong, listen to this other black person speak. And they would draw out people like Candace Williams, they draw out John McCourt, they draw out uh, Larry Elder. Um, and, you know, that I think I'll add the Larry Elder video where he's totally destroying this co-host because I think it's important that people see it. It's not enough um, to A, think that because you are nice to 
black people and you care about their cause, if you don't do enough research on statistics, if you don't do enough research on uh, the history of redlining in America, let alone uh, civil rights issue, issues in this country, you will be left open to people like Larry Elder, who as much as they are well-meaning, I don't think they're deceitful. Um, I think that they really do feel that black people have to pull up their bootstraps and stop lagging behind and that it's all their fault. And that's basically his message, right? Um, I mean, you've seen this video, right? You, you saw the one that I tagged you in. Yeah, yeah. It's very uncomfortable to watch because he's very passionate, he's very articulate, and the, co <laughs> the presenter, bless him, is just not up to the task and doesn't have the counter-arguments prepared. So basically, you know, um, he ends up dominating the, the conversation just because he is armed with all of the facts and all of that to present his, his angle of it, which I think is very, very skewed. <laughs> Very much so. Um, if anyone is interested in seeing the um, conversation that myself and Dee were in regarding my my minute by minute analysis of what should have been said by the host, do let us know in the comment. I'm very happy to let you in on that because I think it needs to be seen to be believed because there are people in my network, less so now, um, that have been very keen to message me about these people thinking that because it's a black voice saying this and therefore I must reiterate what that black person is saying. I think because they're influenced by the amount of views, the context of this person, um, their background, you can take a fact, a piece of data and you can use it to shower people with your own warped ideology or maybe that's a bit much, you can use it to, to, to misguidingly say that this is what should be derived from that fact. So I find it very suspicious when people say, where's the data, where's the data, when I talk about certain other things, which honestly, if we don't talk about these things with enough um, honesty, then we will weaponize these voices in the worst possible way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, totally. And it's, it's really gross to misuse a black person against another black person. So they, I mean, fair enough to have an argument and a discussion with different points but don't say okay just because this person has got the same color skin as you you've got to listen to him because mm. really our ideologies and that aren't based on our skin we all have different beliefs and different ways of getting there so i mean i know mexican trump supporters and stuff like that and that doesn't mean that i'm going to listen to them just because they're my race like they're still very very wrong and misguided um, yeah 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 i mean god you're so right i mean we, we've i think we've all talked about and shared that meme about all lives matter so we don't have to go into that but um one of the things that i picked up on in this video is that it talk about black on black crime and a really comedic way of actually like addressing this because sometimes humor is good to actually sell a point is that if you're a criminal in a neighborhood where the history of america has put you in that neighborhood you're not suddenly going to think right I know I live in Compton, but I'm going to go to Manhattan and I'm going to like basically rob somewhere, someone there and then come back. You'll probably do it to someone in your neighborhood. It doesn't mean that there's something wrong with black people in that regard. We need to stop sharing that black on black crime um, statistic in the worst possible way. Uh, and yeah, lo and behold, newsflash, there's ways of dying um, whilst you're being taken into custody by police, which don't involve a gun. Um, so I just have to get that off my chest. Um, we have a few minutes left. Um, is there anything that you want to say on my last few points, Dee, before we uh, wrap up? Um, 
no, I think that you've, I think you've encapsulated it well. I don't have anything to, to add at the moment. Okay. Um, you had a wonderful idea though about how we introduce the next topic in the next video. You have a mutable idea, which I think is it's good. I think we should share it with the audience. Why, thank you. Um, <laughs> so, so John and I were just talking, we're planning on doing these sessions weekly because we um, basically we're, we're trying to offer something that we wish we had. We wish that we'd been able to hear people from diverse backgrounds talking about these topics in a timely, relevant way, rather than being filtered through, um, I don't know, book publishers, academia, news sources, and all of that, which takes fucking ages to get through. We just are hungry to hear more diverse voices. And so we're doing it because um, that's what we think the world needs. So we hope that it's helpful to everyone. Um, and what we would like to do is to continue to record this um, every week and between now and then we're not going to pick the topic in advance So I can't tell you what we're going to talk about next week But we're going to be keeping an eye on what the current events are any ideas that come up and what really sparks our attention So if you guys have something that you would like to hear us talk about, please do give us a comment um, We are always um, just hungry to keep learning about this as we're also continuing to learn and Yeah, that's why we're doing it ultimately is to learn and to contribute in some way awesome. positively. Awesome. Can I give a quick shout out? Um, someone I used to work with as a fundraiser, Marcus, left a really eloquent response to our Instagram post of this video talking about how his daughter had, um, well, uh, made fun of, of his uh, nose. We were talking about obviously the European beauty standards. Mm -hmm. um, and I just, I'm so happy that he shared it. Um, and also how, uh, it, it appeared to move him. So if you if you do watch a video that we've done and you want to interact with us, it won't be something that we just give a like to. Emojis are the death of information <laughs> or the communication that we, I think we value. So please um, feel free to message us. And if, if something does obviously like um, trigger a new um, concept of discussion, then we'll give you a shout out for that as well. Yeah, yeah, totally. Thank you so much for everyone who has reached out. It means a lot to know that the things that we're talking about resonate with you. Cool. So cool. we'll call it a day for now and we'll see you next week. Awesome. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. <laughs>